You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 100. On today's show, we talk about a very interesting half-million-year-old site in southern England. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, everyone. And on with me today is Dr. Matt Pope. Matt, how's it going? It's going great. It's Friday evening. Perfect. So I'd like to mention in the times of coronavirus and things like that, just in case the world has ended by the time this podcast comes out, what the date is. And it is currently... August 14th that we're recording this. And I'm saying that too, because I was introduced to you through the PR office at University College London, and you guys had a major announcement this week as we're recording this. But as the listeners are hearing, it was a few weeks ago. So there should be a lot more information out there about this now. uh, And hopefully we can link to some of that in the show notes. But why don't you tell us first off what the Boxgrove site is and where it's at? We can tell Probably our savvy listeners could tell you're probably in the UK somewhere, given your accent. <laughs> but tell us, tell us where you're at. Where is the Boxgrove site, and and what is it? Let's start there. Yeah. Well, look, I'm from I'm from southern UK, right on the south coast, kind of overlooking France. And the site isn't so far from from where I live. It's in a it's in a province called Sussex, and it's a hard thing to describe, even just in terms of a site, because Boxgrove originally was a group of quarries where there was mineral extraction occurring and that's where the discovery uh, was made we'll talk about that a bit later um but it's actually we've now gone on to find out it's actually a 26 kilometer wide ancient landscape preserved at anywhere between 20 meters depth and outcropping locally in, in valleys so what we're talking about this this week is just one tiny pinprick in a massive preserved landscape one excavation area that was 20 by 10 meters in size. Okay. Yeah. Boxgrove is, uh, I think a plant, uh, over here, uh, if mm. I'm not mistaken, how did it get the name Boxgrove site? Okay. So a, a grove is a, is a group of trees, like small, sure. a small wood and box is a, is a tree. It's a, it's a, it's a tree that you make boxes out of. So box grove means box wood, you know, little wood of boxes. And it was a, it was a common, it was a lovely bit of landscape of, of trees until in 1974, mm-hmm. big diggers came in and it was extracted for sand and gravel. Um, the gravel overlies the sand and at the junction between these big sediment bodies with commercial value, there's a thin bed of intertidal marine and terrestrial silts and clays. And that's where the bulk of the archaeology is. Let's put the Boxgrove site in context here. How old is it? The earliest part of it is in a full interglacial period in, in Earth's climate history, about 400 
90,000 years ago through to 475,000 uh, years ago. So, so getting on for half a million years ago. And it stands oh. fully into glacial conditions where the planet is just like it is now, warm, high sea level with a, with a big beach being formed. And then it goes through into a cold stage. So sea level starts to fall. The landscape starts to be affected by periglacial activity. And then you get into one of these prolonged cold stages, one that we call marine isotope stage 12 that comes off the oxygen isotope record. And the sequence spans into that period as well. So it's a, a long period of time. But these occupation horizons with the really good archaeology are around 480,000 years ago. Okay. Now you mentioned this was down on the southern southern portion of England there. And I'm wondering, I, I like to try to visualize sites in their in their context from when the people would have used them. And sometimes yeah. working here in Nevada, you know, we might find a site that's you know, six thousand years old, dated by projectile points or arrowheads, and we're sitting on the edge of a dry playa. And I like to sit and think yeah, that would have been a huge lake in front of me 6,000 years ago because wow. the lakes hadn't quite subsided yet after the glaciers started to melt. So when you're telling me this is nearly half a million years old, this might be an obvious question for you. But for somebody from the United States and possibly the rest of our, our listeners around the world, was England an island still back then or was it connected to France at all uh, via um, – you said it was interglacial, so there was probably a lot of water in the sea. So maybe it was yeah. isolated by water, but what did it look like back then? Yeah, if you want to take the macro geographical view, <laughs> completely right. At this point in time, 480,000 years ago, Britain is just a peninsula of Northern Europe. Okay. There is a long-running escarpment of, of soft limestone, which we call chalk, and it would have just run straight away across Southern Britain, through Boxgrove, through where I live, and then curved around, joining up with what's the French is the French coast now. Okay. It's after this period. So you've got this high sea level. At that point, what is now the English Channel just would have been an embayment of the Atlantic. But it's after this period, the sea level falls, you get a massive glacial advance, really cold period. And then as it melts, you get the forming of a big pro-glacial lake um, behind this mm -hmm. rock ridge. And when that melts, in the warm period afterwards, the English Channel is formed. And that's the first time it gets cut off. But at this point in time, 480,000 years ago, we're just the northernmost bit of France. I know how shallow some of that could be, too, because I actually spent a whole summer, about three months, just staying with a friend, to be honest, and, and just kind of hanging out on the island of Jersey. And I no know... Way in the Channel Islands there. And I know when the tide goes out, you can practically walk to France <laughs> from that island. Oh it's God. so shallow. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, my my other big research area is Jersey. So uh, this is the first yeah. July and August that we haven't spent excavating oh. in Jersey for for right. over 10 years because of, of the pandemic. But yeah, that inter, intertidal landscape there, and I think you're talking about the Violet Bank, yeah, it's Probably. incredibly shallow there, and it's and it contains mm -hmm. Neanderthal archaeology. So, nice. our project is called our overarching project is called the La Manche Prehistoric Research Group, and and Boxgrove okay. and La Carte in Jersey and these other sites are just on the edge of what is a great drowned landscape. 
like Doggerland, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not Doggerland. It's not the North Sea. It's the English Channel, what the French call La Manche. Uh, it's, and it's a new area of, of discovery, and it's very exciting to be part of that. Yeah. And some of our listeners might be wondering why we're not specifically talking about the archaeology yet, because you really have to put this stuff in context because you've got these sites in the Channel Islands. You've got these sites on the southern tip of England. You've got these sites in northern France. And because we look at them today and we say, well, look at all this water, you know, they they couldn't possibly be connected. But culturally, they probably are connected because of what the landscape looked like a half a million years ago and how easy it was to travel back and forth between them. So you can start making those connections in places that today don't seem very well connected. So it's, it's great that, uh, uh, it's great that we're talking about that. I like it. I love thinking about how those things looked back then. Cause it was very different than today. That's where I've put, put the main focus of our research. Now it's, it's really exciting to understand the shared history and the shared prehistory and mm-hmm. Britain has such an episodic record of early prehistoric occupation. Because it's right on the limit, because it's a place that gets intensely cold, it means there's long periods in which no people can live in Britain. So every time you get a new reoccupation episode, you see something different, and it allows you to measure those changes and those innovations from occupation to occupation. So it's a good laboratory. Yeah, indeed. So, all right. Well, so we titled this episode, the Box Grove Horse Butchery Site. So we talked about the Box Grove site. What is the horse butchery site? What? How does this play, play into it? Yeah, the horse butchery site. You know how when you're excavating sites, you develop your own narrative of them and they, they, they develop a shorthand. Well, it wasn't, of course, called the horse butchery site to begin with. It was called GTP-17. Geological Test Pit 17. It's a rescue excavation. Okay. You know, it, it, there's there's sampling, there's areas of of gravel and sand removal, and this was a test pit to sample and see what was in this particular area. And what what it showed up is that the horizon where you normally get good concentrations of flakes and and maybe bone, there wasn't so much, but a bit further underneath it in some silts which were laid down intertidally, there was really well-preserved archaeology in the form of of scatters of of flint artefacts. Over the next three years, this area was opened up into a large, in excess of 20 by 10 metre area, revealing a couple of thousand flint artefacts bigger than a centimetre. Of course, you know, thousands of tiny flint debitage of of small little spools. Mm -hmm. And the fragments, over 600 large fragments of bone. And all but one of these 600-odd fragments belong to a single large female horse and showed obvious signs, cut marks at the time. So even while it was being excavated, it was obvious this site seemed to be a single episode and seemed to relate entirely to um, the processing of a horse carcass. Well, I don't even want to know how long it took you to figure out that all those bone fragments came from a single individual animal because some poor grad student or undergrad had to put all that together, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we had um, an amazing faunal specialist, Simon Parfit, who, who was mm-hmm. instrumental in recording this site with um, two of his colleagues back then, Jamie McKenzie and Indira Mann. And Simon, of course, could identify these bones as they were coming up. So that picture developed really, really quite quickly. It was proving it. It was proving that it was just one episode. (laughs) 
proving that all those bits of bone came from just one one horse that that really took the time. So, so what would be a reason? Uh, I guess I don't know if culturally is the right word, but what would be a reason for a group of people to butcher a horse into so many pieces? A lot of people might be thinking, well, why wouldn't they, you know, quarter it, have big pieces, pull off the meat, things like that. I'm just thinking prehistorically to give our audience a little bit of an idea of the uses, uh, the extensive uses of something like this, especially something as large as a horse. I mean, this would have fed a group of people for, well, a large group of people for one big feast or a smaller group of people for a little while if they treated the meat yeah. and stuff properly. But what else, could, what else could they have gotten out of this? What, what do you get from butchering a horse prehistorically? Well, if we're going just on what we can absolutely demonstrate at this point in time, archaeologically, mm-hmm. it's the flesh because we can see clear filleting marks um, as well as the jointing marks. They know how this animal's put together. Big concentrations of cut marks around the major muscle attachments, holding elements of the limbs together, the articulation of, uh, of you know, uh, upper limbs into, into the pelvis and shoulder blades. They know how to dismember it quite well. And then there's a huge amount of, uh, of filleting, removing the meat. Mm-hmm. There's removal of the tongue, There's smashing up of the skull, presumably to remove the brain. Now we can extrapolate that, that, you know, offal is being prized here. You know, they are going to be, you know, almost certainly eating the liver, the heart, the lungs, you know, these things contain lots Mm -hmm. of nutrients, but that's not going to, that doesn't actually leave any cut marks. You can remove the the viscera and you're not going to leave any indelible, any indelible marks. Whereas the jaw and the brain, you can see that. Mm. But even the meat itself, you know, causes us, uh, you know, some some questions. One is, is not hugely nutritionally valuable um, horse meat, especially if it's a wild animal. It, you know, it's not going to have a huge amount of fat on it. We don't quite know what season it is. It's what happens with the bone that's really the most interesting thing to us. The fact that it's not just the limb bones that are being cracked open to take out the the more kind of you know, lumpy marrow, as we would understand it, eating a eating a lamb or a goat or something. It's that all the spongy bone is smashed up. Now, there's some big flat rocks mm. around. There's some round rocks. Every single piece of stone has been brought to this site, and they're bringing lots of things that are weighing two or three kilograms, either as raw material or as hammer stones or as anvils for um, breaking open bone and smashing up the spongy bone. I've done some experiments with a colleague of mine, Anamika Milks, and one thing in when you smash up this spongy bone is just how liquid horse grease, bone grease is. It's like if you imagine leaving butter out in the sun, you get this kind of yellow, almost creamy grease, just if it's warm, just pouring out of the spongy bone. And this mm-hmm. really set our brains, you know, maybe yeah they might be chewing on some uncooked meat these people do not have fire we've got no evidence of fire there can be you know no boiling they could be drying stuff you know we've got no evidence of drying racks or smoking or anything but fat is something that is so prized that's so valuable that we see other lower paleolithic sites you know being being targeted parts of the body that contain fat being targeted especially with things like elephant ram barkai's work on elephant butchery shows uh, some of that fat targeting that um mm-hmm. but yes fat seems to be one of the main things and 
given that horses have this wonderful liquid bone grease, well, maybe you know it was it was it was something that if not targeted for its fat, they probably knew they were going to get something wonderful out of it. Yeah, it, is that a horse thing or is that a large mammal thing? Well. I'm not an expert in the marrow of all different yeah. types of, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm assured by Simon Parfit that horses have a particularly liquid bone grease. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good point to take our first break. And when we come back, I want to talk about why this site is important. And then we'll start talking about the actual, uh, the actual people that were doing all this butchering and living there. We'll be back in just a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code T-A-S. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 100, and I'm on with Dr. Matt Pope, and we are talking about the Boxgrove Horse Butchery site in Southern England. So, Matt, you mentioned in the last segment that this was probably a one-off, not long-term occupation because this is one horse. Uh, they probably took the horse down. Hopefully, they took the horse down so the meat was fresh. We didn't really talk about whether or not you found any sort of uh, spear points or evidence of actually killing the animal or if they just walked up on an animal that had been, you know, a uh, more scavenging situation or something like that. So I don't know if it was hunted or scavenged. Let's talk about that first. Do you have evidence for that in one way or the other? No, we don't have any kind of smoking gun that proves that this was hunting. We don't have okay. um, an impact wound that we can, we can point to. We don't have a weapon at the site. There's no stone projectile points at this point in time. There may be simple wooden spears, i.e. sharpened uh, you know, uh, uh, lances of, of wood. Um, but the first one of those is found in the archaeological record almost 100,000 years later. We hmm. assume predation is possible. Just that for uh, at Boxgrove and other sites, you're getting increasingly in the half million years leading up to this point, entire carcasses where cut marks are always underneath carnival norm marks. 
So these carcasses are abandoned mm. by humans eventually, and hyenas and lions and wolves are getting in there. But you can see then the cup, the the gnaw marks going over the cut marks. So they're getting primary okay. access, and you're going to do that in one of two ways. You're either going to be somehow following an animal until it dies of, of, a, of an injury sustained somewhere else or you're driving away carnivores that have made the kill and uh, if they if they haven't eaten that's going to be pretty tough or you're hunting so we've got no smoking gun but i'm it's perfectly plausible this animal was killed by the group and it's butchered where it died okay sounds good so what makes this site so important with it being a I work in cultural resource management archaeology, and anytime we have a, a site that, you know, just kind of sits by itself and it's not a habitation site or something like that, we typically, from a, a preservation perspective, will just make our recommendation and, and move on because uh, it's a single occupation site, not much happened there, and, and it's usually not that significant. Habitation sites are usually seen as more significant because you've got evidence of people's life ways and what they were doing, and, and for a longer period of time, maybe they came back seasonally. But if this wasn't like that, then what what stands out on this site? What makes it important for the archaeological record? Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective to see it from. And um, I, mm-hmm. I can answer that in two, in two ways. One of the big questions we have at this point in time is where were the habitation sites? Mm. You know, we've got over 90 excavated localities within the Box Grove quarries, and many of them produced you know, artifacts, assemblages, and accumulations of bone. In every case, these are butchery sites. These are places where people either brought down game or dragged game to and butchered them and fed, no doubt. And that's a, that's a pattern that you can see, you know, across the evolutionary record, whether it's in the Near East or whether it's in Africa, the rest of, rest of Europe. With very few exceptions, early sites that you're finding in caves – you know, we look at the Spanish early sites at Spain, like Cima de Alifante and, and Grandolina. Right. It's not clear these are places where people are actually living. These are places where things accumulate. Habitation sites come a bit later in the archaeological record, a place where we know people were living and had fire and were processing and bringing carcasses that have been partially dismembered to. Yeah, but we haven't yet crossed that evolutionary threshold. So we're having to reconstruct a lot of what we understand about early human behavior in the lower Paleolithic from these activity areas. And these activity areas usually come, and we do a lot of CRM work where we're lucky to come across them this old, but we do. They usually come in two varieties. One, they've been um, completely completely chewed over by fluvial processes or slope processes and you've got a jumble and you might have more than one episode no spatial arrangement and it tells you people are there it's important but it's hard to get any high resolution out or you might get some really good spatial arrangement but it'll be a palimpsest because it's a surface that's been open for maybe decades Mm -hmm. so you can't (laughs) work out whether it's one big episode or lots of little episodes you haven't got any resolution What is exciting about GDP-17 is the artifacts were found within a clay lamination, which was laid down by a tidal episode. So it sits within the tidal range of of a coastal marsh. So if it wasn't covered on the day that the activity took place, it was covered very quickly after. So we know that all of those artifacts and those bones 
relate to one moment in time, one day at that kind of distance. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool. It, it seems like all the neat things back in that time period happened when something got covered, right? I mean, we've got footprints covered by volcanic ash and things getting covered by tidal episodes. It really kind of seals up the site and puts a nice little bow on it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think it's what it's, what it's about is about energy. It's about having a process that covers a site, but with such low energy that things aren't being moved. So volcanic ash raining right. down. If you think of the footprints, the, the Neanderthal footprints that have just been discovered on the French coast at Roselle, it's mm-hmm. windblown sand just blowing over it. And at Haysborough and, and you know, Laetoli and here, it's low energy. So a site gets very quickly, but you know, it's not like a, it's not like a, pyroclastic flow which could bury a city right. quickly dev- with devastation you know imagine what that would do to prehistory um it's yeah. it, it's it's gentle so that's the the lovely thing okay great well i want to talk because we've alluded to the the people that did this uh, several times now but they weren't people in the sense that we know them today because modern homo sapiens go back depending on who you talk to about two hundred thousand years genetically so who are we talking about who actually did this uh, did this butchery? Who was living in the area at the time? Who were the Boxgrove people? Yeah, that's that's, right. um, <laughs> that's been a question that <laughs> I've been very imprecise about asking all week because, of course, it's a question that a lot of people have been asking. When I first started mm-hmm. working on this kind of archaeology, which is now a quarter of a century ago, <laughs> a tibia, a shin bone had been discovered at Boxgrove. Really very exciting. We don't have much fossil human material up in Britain at all. But this site mm-hmm. produced a half million year old shin bone. Um, it was really robust. It was really, it had the ends chewed off. But Eric Drinkhouse and Chris Stringer, who both studied it, reconstructed the height of this individual as being over six foot, but having the robustness of, mm-hmm. a, of a Neanderthal. So this was a really powerfully built individual. And around the same time in Europe, we have these uh, uh, skulls. Skulls survive a bit better than the post-crania, the, um, the, the ribs and limb bones and things, of these really quite massively built, large brain, big-faced, uh, with big brow-ridged um, early humans, which have been given the species name Homo heidelbergensis. And that was after right. a jaw that was discovered in Germany in 1908. So you're naming a species after a jaw that was discovered a long time ago. We don't you know, know too much about the circumstances of the discovery. You're relating it to a group of skulls um, and crania, and then you're making a leap l- linking it to this, uh, this tibia. It's probably... Mm-hmm the case that actually you've got a lot of species variation at this point in time and um, Maria Martina Torres and Chris Stringer and others are looking in detail now at the fossil record of this period that seems really interesting and patchy there might be more than one population of early human in Europe at this time and I say population in instead of species because you know species is a human construct as we know with Neanderthals you know you can call them a different species they fit that criteria in terms of having different morphology but they're perfectly capable of interbreeding with homo sapiens and denisovans so there might be a lot of fluidity there so Mm -hmm. all i can tell you is that what we have is a relatively modern human that is probably very close to the evolutionary lines of ourselves homo sapiens the neanderthals and denisovans Nice, nice. You know, just as an aside, 
Don't you feel as an archaeologist that we just really missed out being an, an intelligent, conscious species, being able to live with these other closely related species? I mean, it seems like throughout time, up until about a couple hundred thousand years ago, there were, like you said, multiple species, if you want to use that term, yeah. uh, multiple populations to use your term, all over Europe and, and Africa and, and probably Asia as well. And it's like, man, where'd they all go? <laughs> well, yeah, a- absolutely. You, know, you only have to go back 40,000 40, years. And, uh, you yeah. Know, but, right. you know, now that we're picking up, you know, the genetic signature of these these early lineages in, in ourselves mm-hmm. and that's variable across the planet. You know, who we are and who they are and, you know, what, mm-hmm. what we've actually done since, you know, there's been periods of introgression and assimilating some of those populations, then actually, you know, I, I, think, I think what we are is actually something really remarkable, you know, and new because right. it's not that we just replace them or wipe them out, you know, it was a it was a kind of period of co-creation and we ended up sure. with true modern humans and uh yeah all the more wonderful for it kind of not that we're really talking about well we are kind of talking about human evolution but it always makes me wonder too about the i guess dynamic ability of the human genome and it makes me wonder about you know future way future human space travel and if we end up with populations of humans that are isolated from other populations of humans for long periods of time i mean we probably still need to talk about thousands of years but maybe shorter you know how those small changes will start to really take effect and would we call a population of humans that was isolated for 500 to a thousand years uh, a different species at some point you know how quickly is that changing and adapting to new environments. It's just really, um, really interesting. And I guess we all started coming together when we had more and more people and we just had more cross population going on there, but it's a, it's really interesting time. Absolutely. But the thing is, remember the, the, the great adaptation we have, and, uh, this would be the case mm-hmm. if we ever go out exploring is, is technology. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll come up against so many different environments right. and atmospheres. Um, but we won't, have a chance to adapt to them, presumably, because we'll have engineered our own microhabitats to make them just like Earth. But yeah, except for gravity, yeah, that's, that's the one thing that is difficult to to change. That's such a good point. From an exploratory standpoint, we've done everything we can to keep ourselves human through technology, <laughs> rather Absolutely. than just adapt to the environment. And we've yeah. co-evolved. <laughs> we've co-evolved with technology. You know, uh, you know, yeah. our, our hands, our limbs, our eyes, our brains. You know, haven't been, you know, that kind of rational idea that we evolved this big brain and it allowed us to do some problem solving and build some cool engineering. No, no you know, it's got, all of these things are actually extended parts of our brain and parts of our consciousness and, and parts of extended parts of our body. So I, th- mm-hmm. I find it really exciting to actually look at the nuts and bolts of, of how we ended up there. And right at the center of that, at this point in time, we have those wonderful objects um, hand axes, bifaces, large cutting tools, which emerged 1.8 million years ago, um, you know, are still there with with late Neanderthals 40 or 50,000 years ago. And that's what the box road mm-hmm. people are excelling at making. Beautiful, wonderful hand right. axes. Nice, nice. 
Okay, well, we've got some relatively big questions coming up, so I think we'll just take a break now and have a slightly longer third segment so we don't get interrupted uh, by our own commercial ad breaks, which I have control over, but I'm a slave to somehow, <laughs> just <laughs> in my own mind. So we're going to take a break, and we will come back on the other side and keep, keep talking about this and wrap up this discussion with Dr. Matt Pope. In the meantime, if you're hearing these ads that we have, and our ads are not for random generic things, they're just for services and things that the APN does. So please, you know, try not to skip them. I listen to podcasts too. I know how people do it. And if you're interested in getting an ad on the Archaeology Podcast Network, please email Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We have a pretty wide reach of currently, as you're listening to this in real time, almost 50,000 downloads per month. And we can target different countries, states in the United States, cities, things like that. So we can we can have your ad go as far as it needs to go. I'm thinking universities. We've advertised for them before. So uh, jobs, whatever. Um, so give Madison a call or email advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. welcome back to the archaeology show episode 100 and we are continuing this discussion with dr matt pope So I want to dive back into the archaeological site itself here uh, for a minute and just ask you how the site was studied. What kind of, I guess, what kind of methods did you guys use uh, to analyze what you did? Uh, Just looking at, you know, kind of bringing our audience into the excavation itself and then the uh, the lab analysis, how you guys went about these things from a high level view. Yeah, so... There's no point beginning to study a site like this unless you're coming away with a really excellent data set. And remember, this site was Mm -hmm. discovered in 1988, excavated in 1988 and 91. About the time I was doing my first digs as a teenager, but I went went nowhere near it. (laughs) So it was completely analog. It was um, handwritten record sheets. It was pencil drawings. And it was between Jamie and Dira and Simon, a lot of high resolution, large format, chemical photography done overhead and this formed the basis of their recording so each time they cleared off a a new layer of silt they'd photograph each square meter directly overhead all of that film would go down to the local pub which was uh, um, just a couple of miles away where they set up a dark room and that night they would develop the photographs check they all came out so that they could then lift the artifacts the next day. They'd mm-hmm. go back with a large picture. They'd put some tracing paper over it. They would draw each flake, give each flake a number. There was a record sheet for each artifact. And so you wow. ended up with this incredible record 
of the position of every artifact without you know laser without you know laser survey or a, t- a total station mm-hmm. and this was really important because um, a lot of the work that we had to do when we um, did the analysis was to first of all prove that this site really was as in situ as it looks and i don't like the word in situ because if if it's well preserved something's moved there's been energy there you just got to find it but you're looking to see sure are there preferred orientations in the artifacts? And that was all recorded. Uh, a larger artifacts clumped in one place and smaller artifacts clumped in another. All of these kind of, uh, you know, sedimentary, you're just treating the artifacts as particles to begin with and seeing if there's any sorting or rearrangement going on. And once we'd carried out those studies and we convinced ourselves this was in primary context, we could actually start to really uh, study it in terms of behavior. Okay. That's awesome. It's amazing. The, I guess in the, in that time period too, the level of meticulous detail they went through, were you guys able to, or was somebody able to, in the time since then, able to take those really detailed photographs and do any sort of photogrammetry, put together a 3d model or anything like that of the excavation through, through the stages? No, no, we would go got a great photogrammetry expert we work with. I mean, we looked for it. <laughs> there was there was very few oblique photographs. It was all uh-huh. over the top. You know, it was all trying right. to create photographs that created plans. So there was no real three-dimensionality to it. We found a few kind right. of uh, little detail shots, and we tried to do some photogrammetry, but no. It wasn't anywhere yeah. near the coverage from lots of different angles. It was trying to create a plan. It was trying to do almost the the photo, photography was trying to do almost the opposite of <laughs> of <laughs> photogrammetry. It was trying to get with really good tripod and spirit levels absolutely perpendicular at a consistent mm-hmm. height to every square meter. So no, we couldn't do that. <laughs> I guess that in itself is impressive. That that meticulous uh, attention to detail is is pretty impressive. So, yeah, um, that's it awesome. Amazing. It yeah. was amazing, and and it meant that we it meant that we had a really high quality data set to work with, you know, over the last few years. So humans and our ancestors have always been in a you know, from a, from a geological time standpoint, uh, or even a genetic time standpoint in a rapidly changing environment. Right. So I mean, you're talking about people that lived when you could walk to France, but there were periods when you couldn't walk to France and there were periods when things were just changing. So are there any adaptations or anything we can see that you guys pulled out of the data set that we can see in the archeological record at that site that are, are maybe unique or, or primarily developed there or just things that you guys noticed? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, I don't think we can identify any adaptations that are really precise to that place and that time. Mm-hmm. Um, human populations, you know, are moving. Uh, you know, they have to be moving with 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 the season. They have to be moving where resources are. But it's still perfectly possible, except for those short periods of rapid climate change that human populations back then could live their entire lives in relative relative stability but what we see more generally when we when we take a big step back and look at uh, what we're dealing with the early middle pleistocene here and going back into the lower pleistocene anywhere up to sort of a million years ago and beyond is that open landscapes that are good for game are going to you know be att- be attractive to to hominins that rely 
for a lot of their resources on on meat. And so it's about tracking different environments. And it's the fact that they found this environment. This this was a coastline, probably only a few thousand years before this site. It was a coastline, but it was a coastline that sits in a bit of an embayment. I actually looked all around. Uh, mm. I looked all around lots of different coastlines in the world to find a bay that was kind of a similar size and similar scale to this one. And Monterey <laughs> Bay on the Californian coast is a, is a good oh, yeah. you know, example. And, and we can trace that landform, even though now it's about 10 kilometers inland, a bay that looks like that. But if you imagine if sea level started to fall or Monterey Bay started to silt up a bit, mm-hmm. It would become intertidal and then grass would start to develop. And that's the point humans are discovering it and animals are discovering it because probably the rest of the landscape is really quite wooded. And woodland has its own resources. I'm sure they were getting resources from woodlands, but they want to be on the edge of that because you're not going to be able to chase uh, prey in those landscapes. There's not going to be big concentrations of game. Finding those areas either after a fire or some dynamic landscape change like silting up of, a, of an embayment is going to create new dry land and new grassland. And that's what I think is part of their niche if I, if I had to if I had to talk about it in those terms. Okay. It's interesting you say Monterey Bay. I was just there for about a week, uh, about a month and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> my oh. wife and I spent a week there. Yeah. So yeah, I'd seen, it, I'd seen it on Google earth. And then when I drove, I drove through <laughs> it, you know, I, I was just trying to compare it. To, that was my experience in Monterey Bay, trying to part, partly think about how it mapped onto the box grid landscape. <laughs> nice. Nice. So I, I'm curious about, are there other similar sites like this in that region or just in the research, maybe, you know, from anywhere in Europe for that matter, whether where it's a single episode horse butchery site or maybe even multiple? I'm, I'm just wondering what other things you guys have to compare this to from the same from the same time period, and the same stylistic uh, representation. Yeah, there's there's quite a nice collection of, you know, open air. Um, Asherlian sites, ones that have this kind of bifacial technology with mm-hmm. butchered animal bone to a degree or another, but not with this level of time depth, well, precision okay. in terms of time depth that allows you to establish that all of the activities you're seeing within that excavation area are basically contemporaneous that they couldn't have been mm-hmm. done over even even a series of days or weeks. I'm not even talking about years because it allows us by tracking things. And one of our big, powerful analytical tools is refitting, piecing back together each of those pieces of flint. We can trace how people are moving around in those few hours. Someone might be making a hand axe facing one way and you see the flakes coming off in a little scatter between their legs, and we get imprints of things like thighs and knees left in this debris because, you know, it's just falling around. But then they seem to turn around. And the rest of the manufacturer of the tool, the flakes are going in another direction. And, you know, we don't know why (laughs) they turned around. Maybe to talk to someone, maybe to get out of the wind, maybe, I don't know, who knows, maybe they want to get away from someone. But we can document that kind of movement on that kind of scale. And, and get a much better estimation of uh, the, maybe the range of number, the numbers of people involved in the, in the activity. So um, yeah. that's, that's what it's giving us. And 
okay, it's a kind of a one-off. It's something that you don't stumble across in the archaeological record. But what's nice about it is it gives us a bit of a benchmark. You know, this is what a single episode of horse um, butchering a horse takes. These are the numbers of mm-hmm. people it takes. This is how many artifacts you would expect to find from it, how many different napping scatters. So if you go to a site uh, where there's, you know, three or four times this amount of material, you know, you've got a be- at least a, a range finder that you can say, actually, you know, compared to GGP-17, this looks like more than one event, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's with, right. we're dealing with so few reference points in the Paleolithic, just to have one clear picture. And of course, you know, in, in earlier uh, approaches to the Paleolithic, everyone wanted to find these kind of ethnographic scale sites and they just don't really exist so to kind of find one or the nearest thing to one is is quite exciting why are we talking about this now uh, this site was excavated a long time ago they've got a great data set you guys have done some analysis does this is this the culmination of a big analytical push is that is this what we can tell from this site i want to talk about what's next for this site but what's what's prompting this discussion today you know post 20 years of of excavation so the, the site was discovered, um, as I said, in 1974 mm-hmm. and excavated uh, through to 1996, 90 different localities. And yeah, we are now committed to just publishing it and getting all of these sites out. And this was one of the one of the most important sites is one that we wanted to begin with in terms of taking to publication. Uh, there was... All of the earlier 80 sites were published uh, over a decade ago as well. So this is hmm. yeah, getting through a long publication backlog of, uh, of okay. uh, excavation sites in the, in the quarries. Yeah, I don't think the general public really realize how important that is either and how much work gets done. I don't want to say hastily because it sounds like they did a really good thorough job at this despite the pressures. Cause you did mention this was a, a rescue project, right? There was, there was development yeah. coming through. That's, that's my bread and butter, right? That's what I do is cultural resource management, archeology. span They're all rescue projects. Yeah. Yeah. My master's thesis, I were, I got my master's at the university of Georgia in Athens here in the United States. And my master's thesis was basically analyzing exactly like this, analyzing a data set from the mid 1970s from early, I think it was Lake Oconee. Almost all the lakes down in the Southeast are dammed up rivers, right? They dammed yeah. up the river and made a lake. And this was one of the sites, there were a number of sites and a number of PhDs that came out of that project. And this is just one of those sites that was excavated. And there were about 40 boxes sitting in the Georgia site files of <laughs> artifacts and notes that had never been analyzed. <laughs> so that's essentially what I did. I, I went through and cleaned everything up and reanalyzed everything and wrote up the report and, and added it to the to the information that you know. But it, God, it really makes you wonder how much is sitting out there in boxes that could contain answers to questions we have. And it's already been excavated. And and what, in, yeah. in terms of British, uh, British archaeology, the fact that this is 1988 to 1991 is very significant because it's not until mm-hmm. 1990 that proper planning legislation comes in that enshrines in law that developers must pay for assessment of evaluation of yeah cultural heritage. So all of the excavations mm-hmm. that took place there in the 70s and 80s were at the you know at the, at the generosity of the gravel company saying well yeah you know we'll we'll give you a bit of time to dig here there was no yeah. agreed budget there was no 
agreed <laughs> program of publication, that all had to be picked up by government funding later on and sorted out. So, you know, this wouldn't happen. Oh, well, never say never, because uh, we're in a position now <laughs> in Britain where um, planning legislation is being uh, sort of devolved, watered down, becoming more advisory. Mm-hmm. That if sites are known about, they might be better protected. But if we don't haven't got anything on the map, who knows what might happen? So I really hope I don't have seen in my career go from this situation where we're still clearing up a backlog from rescue excavation prior to legislation um, and entering a world in which maybe, you know, some of these uh, bad approaches come back. Wow. Yeah, indeed. That's a bleak (laughs) <laughs> that is that is bleak. Uh, hey, it's not getting any better over here either. There's a lot of. Uh, it's interesting to see how our our election's going to go in November because there's been a lot of a lot of deregulation happening and just stripping away some provisions that that not only from a selfish standpoint give me a job in archaeology, but more importantly, you know, protect these things just by the sheer fact of recording them you know, and, and surveying and, and do these, doing these, doing this work. Um, it's amazing. We're all, we're all um, looking on in horror and we really hope things are different in November. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, me too. So, all right. So what's, what's next for this area? What's next for the, the people that were at the box grove site? What's next for the research in this area? Has this spawned some other questions yeah. and, and research avenues for you? Where are you going with this? Well, there's, there's, there's still plenty more in the, in the archive that needs to be written up and mm-hmm. brought to publication. Big parts of these original quarries have been put back to bed and turned back to farmland. Part of it is owned oh. by the, by uh, the national heritage organization, English heritage, where there could be um, further work. But what's really exciting is there's 26 kilometers to play with. And I've done a couple of mm. excavations in that landscape, and we find that same archaeology to varying degrees within that within that wider landscape. So there, you know, there is such a huge body of uh, uh, you know sampling exercises. If we could understand the logic of that landscape, who knows what we could find within yeah. it? And it's just a it's just a brilliant resource that maybe my aim now. You know, I'm pretty mid career. Is very much thinking about. Right, where am I going to park this? How am I going to get things are a struggle getting people to come into PhDs, getting people to come into funded research? I'm really getting quite panicky about how are we going to hand this over to another generation? You know, right. how are we going to get them into post that, you know, when we're going into retirement, there's the continuation on it because this is a multi generational job. Right. And yeah, got to start thinking responsibly about that. You know, with all the the rescue projects from the past that still need analyzing, and 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 some of this really could be, you know, thesis or PhD research for somebody, you know, depending on the size of the data set and and the questions that need to be answered from that. I often wonder why universities don't approach another model, a little more of a business model, and just have somebody go through and say, okay, we've got this. Here's some potential questions we can answer. Here's this, and here's and this, and almost sell it. You know what I mean? Put together an ad and say, hey, come to our university, and here's here's your thesis 
thesis. Uh, this is what it is. This is the potential effect you could have on the archaeological record because we need to know the answers to these questions. It might just be a little more sexy to people to have that kind of thing in mind because I'll tell you what, I know when I was 18, I didn't like making choices like that or 22, 23 when you're going to grad school. You know, I went when I was like 30 and it was still somewhat paralyzing to figure out what I was going to do. <laughs> well, well, Chris, <laughs> I work for <laughs> Institute of Archaeology and, and part of our organization that I work for is Archaeology Southeast, which is the CRM group. Mm-hmm. And you can now do a degree here with us at the Institute of Archaeology where you do three years and then you do one year right in the middle that's working with us in the field doing CRM archaeology, learning it inside nice. out. And you can take on, we've got plenty of boxes you could take on as a dissertation project. So <laughs> we're, trying, we're trying to develop that. And I think it's absolutely one of the, one of the ways forward um, in, in this. Make it work here. All right. Well, Thanks a lot for that. This has been a fantastic interview. Um, I love fitting archaeology and human evolution into the same conversations here because we don't often get to do that over here in the United States because the past just doesn't go back far enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just one final thought here. It seems like I've walked hundreds of miles in the Great Basin and in California and in other parts of the country and not seen a single thing, like not seen a single artifact, a feature, nothing. I've dug many, many, many holes, whether they're excavation holes or, you know, 30 centimeter round shovel tests where there were no artifacts, no artifacts, no features, but it doesn't seem like, it seems like if you drop a shovel in the UK, you're probably going to find a site. (laughs) I can tell you, Chris, that's absolutely not not the case. And I've dug (laughs) of holes through gravel and found absolutely nothing. Uh, Yeah. But yeah, that's the game. (laughs) I wish I could say I was sorry to hear that, but it kind of makes me feel a little better. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Matt Pope. Just finally, is there anywhere somebody can go on the web to find out more about the Box Grove site? Is there a website or anything that uh, we can direct them to? Yeah, we've got a little website and it's got some some links to, to resources and we're shipping the new volume internationally. It's very reasonably priced. So um, yeah, look out for some ads for that as well. Okay. Well, if you send me those links over, I'll make sure they can get in the show notes before this episode releases. And hopefully uh, we can direct people over there to learn some more stuff about it. So in the meantime, thanks again. This has been fascinating and uh, looking forward to, to everything else that comes out from there. Thank you, Chris. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.